It is an honor to stand before you, to sing before you. And Lord, I pray for your work in our hearts this morning. I pray that we would not be here to play church. God, I ask that you move among us. I pray that you change us where we need to change. Lord, for us here today that need to confess sin, we confess our sin. We want nothing to impede your work in our lives. God, go before us now. And by your Spirit, speak. And as we open up your word, I pray, would open up renewed life. Revive our souls and our walk with you and our relationship with you to know you at a deeper level. God, forgive us at times for playing games. Forgive us at times for checking off the box that we've come to church and so we think we're spiritual. God, strip us of pride. Strip us of self-righteousness. And help us gaze upon who you are and forget about us. Lord, I pray for your enablement now. I pray for your help as I preach, that I would just preach your word with a passion and a love, that you would help me to encourage your people in their walk with you. May we be able to leave this place knowing it was good to be in the house of God and we heard from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Sometimes I struggle in my relationship with God. Yes, pastors struggle. If you just remove my title, I am just a man, flawed, sinful, insecure. Sometimes I struggle in my relationship with God, and at times it's in part because I forget who I am. At other times, it's because I forget who God is. A person's thoughts about God are very important and very impactful. Our thoughts about God determine the trajectory of our life. They shape our everyday living, including our actions. What we think about God, who is he, shapes who we are, including our actions and including our emotions, how we feel. A.W. Tozer, in his book, I highly recommend this book. It's a book every Christian should read, Knowledge of the Holy. He put it this way. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he, in his deep heart, conceives God to be like. See, when I struggle in my relationship with God, I need to remember who he really is. I need to remember who you are, God. And I need to remember what he really is like. Not what the culture says God is like. And not what this world says God is like. But who God really is and what he is really like based on his word. Because sometimes we struggle in our relationship with God. Some of you here, you have a strained relationship with God. You are doubting him because of something that's happened. You don't trust him anymore because of somehow you were hurt. There is secret sin in your life and you have grown callous to the things of God. And he's been calling out to you and you are not responding. 
And you need to remember who he is. You need to remember what he is really like. And that's where Peter turns our attention this morning. And I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is addressing believers who've been uprooted and scattered across the Roman Empire. And they're suffering and they're hurting and they're confused and they're doubting. And some of you are here this morning. You feel scattered. You're suffering and you're hurting and you're confused and you're doubting. And Peter is going to remind us of some very important truths about our God. We've seen this doxology of praise that he has given us. And he's given us this application saying, take the doctrine I have given you and do something with it. And now in verse 17, we read these important truths. 1 Peter 1.17 If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your fear of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. When it comes to understanding God, and when we're struggling with our relationship with God, we need to remember these three things. Number one, address him as father. Say that with me. Address him as father. Verse 17, if you address as father, I am his child. And too often time, I approach God with this austere title of God, Lord. Yes, he is God. Yes, he is Lord. But he's my father. Yes, he is your God. Yes, he is your Lord. But do not forget, he is your Father, when you come to him, remember that. He loves you. He cares for you. There is wisdom for you. There is direction for you. He is your Father. John 1, 12. So many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God, even to those who believe in his name. I received and I believed. He is my father. I am his child. Galatians 3.26, for you are all what? Sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I have placed my faith in Christ Jesus. God is my father. I am his child. If you have received and you have believed and you have come to faith... God is your father. You are his what? His child. Don't forget that. Remember your relationship, who God is. If you address him as father, and he says if here, it implies since. There's no doubt about it, only certainty. Romans 8, 15. But you have received a spirit of what? Adoption. As sons by which we cry out, say it with me, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians 4, 6, similar. Because you are sons, God sent forth his Spirit, the Spirit of his Son, into our hearts crying. Say it with me. Abba, Father, that is how you must remember to look to God. He is your Father. 
and address him as such. Abba, Father, reminds us of relationship, of closeness, of his care, of wisdom, of guidance. You know, I, I, yes, he's God, yes, he's Lord, but he's my Father. I don't want my kids uh, addressing me, calling me, Sir, Boss Man, Lord, Lord of the house, Lord of the home. That's for my wife to call. Not, no, just kidding, just kidding. What do I want my kids to call me? Tell me. Daddy or dad. I also don't want them to call me the big guy at the house or the big guy in the sky. God doesn't want that. What does he tell us to address him as? Father, daddy, Abba. That's how I want my kids to address me, not sir, not Lord, not boss man. God wants the same thing from you who are his children. He wants to hear you say, Daddy. He wants to hear you say, Abba. He wants to hear you say, Father. That's what he wants to hear. He says, if you address, dress as Father. Address means to call upon him, to appeal to him, to pray to him. And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus said. This is exactly how the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. In Matthew 6, 6 through 9, he'll say, when you pray, when you're praying, pray then in this way. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows that what you need before you ask Him. Verse 9, say it with me. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So when it comes to understanding God, When it comes to the times when you are struggling in your relationship with God, remember to address him as father. He is your father. Secondly, fear him as judge. Fear him as judge. If there's anything that's going to set us straight and protect us from sin and get us back on the straight and narrow, We better understand the importance of fearing him as judge. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Yes, he is our father, but he also holds us accountable. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he cares for us. Yes, he forgives us, but he also judges us. We live in a world, and even among Christians, who want to ignore this reality. We live among people who want to avoid this conversation and and pretend that God's love just overlooks everything. I want you to understand, God is also a judge. A good father doesn't let his children do whatever they want. A, A good father doesn't give his kids free reign and let them sin indiscriminately, selfishly, in any way they want. He holds his children accountable. God holds me accountable. God holds you and you and you and you and you, all of us accountable. 
Now, God judges impartially. The one who impartially judges. In other words, he never plays favorites. He's never biased. He can't be bribed. He's never prejudiced. He's 100% fair 100% of the time. We see this truth throughout, throughout Scripture. Acts 10.34, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. Ephesians 6.9, there's no partiality with him. Colossians 3.25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without what? Partiality. He judges impartially. He also judges individually according to each one's work. So no one is exempt from God's impartial scrutiny. No one, including me, including you, including all of his children. He sees all. He hears all. He knows all. So it is best that you guard what you say and how you say it. Matthew 12, 36. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Better be careful what you say. Better be careful not to take the Lord's name in vain. Better be careful not to brag and to boast. Better be careful not to gossip and slander about that girl at school, about that coworker, about that neighbor, about that person on your team, about that other Christian in this church. You will be held accountable. Better be careful not to curse either behind someone's back or to their face. Guard what you say. Watch where you go. Watch what you do. Proverbs 5.21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches how many of his paths. God sees where you go and what you do, and he records it. It's all taken down. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are where? Every place, watching the evil and the good. He sees it all, he knows it all. Jeremiah 16, 7, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. I am not blind, God says, I see it. I see where you went. I see what you did. Hebrews 4, 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God judges impartially. God judges individually. God judges accurately. Again, verse 17, he's the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Now, understand unbelievers will be judged based on their works. Every person who has not come to faith in Jesus Christ will be judged. We are told about the great white throne judgment, the unbelieving dead of all the ages, before the throne of God, and evidence will be presented. An incredible picture in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I praise God my name is in the book of life. Humble yourself. Unbeliever here who's never come to faith in Jesus Christ, don't play religious games anymore. Humble yourself. He needs to be your savior or he will be your judge. There is no two ways about it. Let Jesus save you or Jesus will judge you. All judgment has been given to the son. He is the one that is on the throne. Believers also will be judged. Not just unbelievers. I will be judged. You will be judged, child of God. Now understand, this is not a judgment for salvation. Our sins have already been judged on the cross. Praise God. But this will be a judgment determining rewards for faithfulness or lack thereof. A time of reckoning, accounting for my life, your life, how we lived our lives on this earth. Because this life is really short. Some of the passages we see this judgment of believers, 1 Corinthians 3.13. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. We're going through the flames. Our deeds, our works. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will what? He will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This will be a time of loss for some and reward for others. There were some of you in this room that will be judged by God. You are believers. And at that judgment, it will be a time of loss. Because of the way you have lived your life on this earth. Because of the wastefulness and sinfulness and selfishness. It will be a time of loss. For others, it will be a time of reward. I want you to understand, the worthless work of my life will be burned up. The things that I've done for eternity or the kingdom will last and be rewarded. Certainly, truly, we better lay up treasures in heaven. Some of you need to make a change in your life today. Because you haven't been living for God. You've been wasting your life. And you do nothing for the sake of eternity. You don't serve him with the gifts he's given you. You never share your faith. All of life revolves around you and all you do is complain because nothing is just like you want it. I got news for you. It's all about God, not you. <laughs> the world doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around me. And the quicker you and I learn that, the better off we'll be because we will be standing before the Lord someday and he will judge us. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. God is even going to reveal the motives of why I have done what I have done. He will reveal the motives 
of what you have done, why you have done it. Seek rewards from him. Seek praise from him, not the people of this world. And clean up your motives. Why do you do what you do? 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is for Christians. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. It is very good to fear God. Know that he judges impartially. Know that he judges individually. Know that he judges accurately. And fear your God. That's what we see in verse 17 next. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, listen carefully. Fear is is not this cowering dread. He's not talking about this cringing terror or this constant paralyzing fear. That's not the fear that God is talking about. We know this from 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, what does it do? It casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. This is a fear that is a reverential awe. A a solemn, deep respect. A godly fear. That's what this is. Similar thought in Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Fearing God is good. Proverbs teaches this, 1-7. The fear of the Lord, what is it? Beginning of knowledge. 9-10 in Proverbs. It's the beginning of wisdom. Listen carefully. The reason why there are so many fools in this world is because there's so few who fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. There's so few who fear God in this world, in this culture. That's why there's so many fools. In other words, the quickest route to foolishness is fearlessness. The quickest route to foolishness is fearlessness. If you don't fear God, you automatically become a fool. And you live the life of a fool. Live in the fear of God all the days of your life. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. In other words, the days that I have on this planet and you have on this planet are very, very short. Make sure you live with fear and reverence and awe for your God. Fearing God will make us careful. Fearing God will make us fruitful. Fearing God will make us purposeful. Start fearing God. That's what I need to understand when it comes to my relationship with God. I need to address him as father. I I need to fear him as judge. Thirdly, I need to love him as redeemer. I need to love him as redeemer. And so do you. Look at verse 18 and 19, 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This God is my father, this God is my judge, but this God is the lover of my soul. This God is your father, he is your judge, but he is the lover of your soul. 
Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way. Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the one there was but the speaking of a word, in the other the shedding of blood. God paid such a high price to redeem you, to redeem me. And he says, knowing it, this is a fact, it's settled, it's sure, it's certain. You have been redeemed. Uh, Your soul has been purchased. You have been saved. You belong to God for all eternity and forever. You're his. You've been redeemed. You've been saved. You've been purchased. And redeemed means a price was paid to set you free. Redeemed means a ransom was paid to save your soul. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. And it wasn't money. No amount of money could save my sorry, sinful soul. Okay? And no amount of money could save your sorry and sinful soul. Not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Now, there's been some very high ransoms that have been paid through the history of mankind. In modern times, 1996, Victor Lee. He's the son of one of Hong Kong's richest businessmen. He was kidnapped by the head of a crime gang. Victor's father paid $135 million to free his son. It's a lot of money. I want you to understand, though, that may be a lot of money, but it doesn't get a soul in heaven. No one can afford the price of a soul. It is way outside of our price range when it comes to salvation and eternity. As a matter of fact, Psalm 49, 7 and 8. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is what? It's costly and he should cease trying forever. In ancient times, a ransom was paid. The date, 1532. Inca Emperor Atahualpa, captured by the Spanish conquistador Pizarro, was held for eight months with the promise to return if a ransom was paid. They paid enough money, gold and silver, to fill a room 22 feet long, 17 feet wide, 8 feet high. Filled with gold, filled with silver. Precious, priceless treasure. Highest ransom ever paid in the history of all mankind. By the way, Pizarro executed him after he got the money. Millions, billions of dollars in gold and silver. I want you to get this. God paid more for you. He paid more for you. He paid more than that for you. That's how important you are to God. He didn't use perishable things of the earth to purchase your salvation. We put too much value on silver and gold and we put too little value on the blood of Jesus Christ. Stuff of the earth is perishable. If all you have is silver, you have nothing. If all you have is gold, you have nothing. Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his what? His soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Some of you just want more and more and more and more money. And you're wasting your life because of your love affair with a dollar. So what? You get all this money, it doesn't do you any good. 
All the money is perishable. Just like the food in your fridge is perishable. Stop valuing the stuff of this earth and start valuing the stuff of eternity, especially the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. We've been redeemed not by money. We've been redeemed from a life of futility. He says, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. In other words, look back on your life and he says, it was vain and useless and empty and and worthless. It's futile. Unredeemed life. An unredeemed life is a futile, wasted life when it comes to the matters of eternity. Uh, you're living for that which is passing and not which is, that is, which is eternal. It's just sinful and selfish and wasteful and there's no glory to God and there's nothing to do with the kingdom of God. He says it's futile. It's a waste. How much of our lives are a waste in light of eternity? You need to ask that question. How much of my life is a waste in light of eternity? You need to ask that question. God has given you a platform. Use it for him, whatever your talent, wherever you work, whatever gifts you have, whatever your job, use it for him. Use it for his glory. Make a difference in light of eternity. From your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You know what that teaches me? Futility runs in our blood. Futility runs in our family. Futility runs in our genes. Futility runs in my race, the human race. I I want you to get this. Generation after generation after generation, we inherit emptiness and aimlessness. Emptiness and aimlessness. Emptiness and aimlessness. And we pass futility on to those afterward. Until we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then futility, the line is broken. I I want you to understand, when we come to faith, we break from futility. When you come to faith, you break from futility. And, And we're reoriented toward eternity. And some of you this morning need to break from futility. And you need to let God save you. You need to let God redeem you. You need to let God forgive you because you've just been doing the futile cycle of life. And some of you are believers, but you've jumped on the futility wagon. You've been wasting your time and your money and your effort. God is saying, what are you doing? I saved you from that. Why are you going back there? It means nothing. It does nothing. It helps nothing. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to what? Redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. No more futility. Let's start being zealous for good works. You've been redeemed not by money. You've been redeemed from a life of futility. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Look at verse 19. 
but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Precious meaning extremely costly, highly valuable, priceless. The blood of Christ so precious to the Father who willingly gave his Son. Precious to the Son who selflessly sacrificed his life. And precious to us as believers who freely receive forgiveness and pardon of all transgressions, of all of our sin. It's the blood of the Lamb. As of a lamb, unblemished, spotless. Remember the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before a shear, so he did not open his mouth. Hear the words of John the Baptist in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again in verse 36, he looked at Jesus as he walked and, and said, Behold the Lamb of God. We see it recorded in the scenes of heaven. Revelation 5.6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Revelation 5.11, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the numbers of them, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And later on in verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. He is the lamb that was slain. Revelation 13.8, and all who dwell on earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been, been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. I want you to understand the cost of your redemption. The perfect, sinless, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God died for your sins. Spotless, unblemished, it means no character defect unstained, sinless, morally and spiritually perfect. That's who our Savior is. He has never, ever done anything wrong, ever. Perfect. I don't know what that's like. But someday I will be made like him. And I can't wait. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? This is the doctrine of imputation. Imputation is a legal term. It's the guilt of one assigned to another person's account. My guilt and my sin, your guilt and your sin was imputed, was transferred onto Jesus Christ. He became my substitute on the cross. He became your substitute on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is crazy. I am so totally sinful and depraved and wicked. And God says, I see you as righteous. It's because of what Jesus did. You and I are so sinful, so depraved, so wicked. And all of that sin through all the ages of eternity, was put upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain. So that now God sees you as righteous. Precious blood is as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Truly there is power in the blood.
What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, say it, nothing but the blood of Jesus. The price was so high and the cost was so painful that my Savior fell on his face. Matthew 26, 39. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. There was no other way to save us. And he cried out to God the Father, If there is some other way. And there wasn't. He had to do this to save you. The price was so high and so painful that he cried out with these words as darkness descended upon the land. Matthew 27, 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out and said with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, say it with me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, why have you forsaken me? That's what your sin did to him. That's what my sin did to him. There was a separation in the Trinity. My sin actually caused a separation in the Godhead, the creator of all. The Father could not look upon sin. And all of my sin was placed upon the Savior. And all of your sin was placed upon the Savior. I want you to understand what God paid to save your soul from hell. When it comes to understanding God, address Him as Father and fear Him as judge and love him as redeemer. This morning, we are going to remember the precious blood. Men at this time who are serving can come forward. I want you to bow your heads with me right now. And I want you to prepare your hearts as we partake of communion. God's word tells us that this is a serious time of examination.